0: So go ahead and turn in your Bibles or on the handout to Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to read verses 12 through 17. So then brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Tonight, I want to start with a story. And this is a story um, that has been made, uh, I've become familiar with over the past couple of years. It's a story of a young pastor. Um, this was a young man, um, pretty fresh out of school, um, had a heart uh, to serve God and so was seeking an opportunity to go into ministry. Well, eventually, um, a call came. Um, He stepped in to getting to be the pastor of a small congregation, and as you can imagine, you know, here's a young guy out of school, excited to to do ministry. He stepped into this new calling with a good deal of enthusiasm, you know, he's eager to see God work. And as he threw himself into the work of the ministry in those first couple of years, uh, it was pretty encouraging. You know, he saw lives change, saw God move. But then things began to get hard. Um, Problems began to emerge. People began to leave. And all of a sudden, as fear of failure began to slip in, um, this pastor began to suffer anxiety attacks. Um, There were nights where he could barely sleep. Until eventually, um, this young pastor, he felt like he'd begun so well, um, he found himself in a counselor's office, where for the first uh, time in his life um, and for the next nine months he got help, um, addressing particularly some of the deepest, kind of most ingrained core narratives that had been been in the background for him since kind of early childhood, but that the pressures of ministry had finally brought to the surface. And, and some of those narratives for him sounded like this. I'm different. There's something wrong with me. The real me would cast a dark cloud over others. I'm not lovable. I'm doomed to loneliness in this life. I can't conceive of someone who really knows me wanting relationship with me. And last of all, I can't be used by God. Now, just by the way, you guys might have pastors in your life, and you might think that they just have it all together. They don't, and the story is a good illustration of that. But what I love about this story is that because I actually happen to know who this person is, um, I, I can tell you this is not only a true story, but it's actually a story with a good ending because eventually through counseling, through community, um, through circumstances, through just powerful moments of encountering God's grace, um, this young pastor began to heal. God began to speak truth into those narratives and with God's help was able to come um, through that season of darkness. Not, you know, not into perfection, not into painlessness, but into a deep, um, just a much deeper form of joy. And in fact, um, the reason that I'm able to tell you all of that, the reason that I wanted to start with this story is because that young pastor is me. (laughs) Um, My job title is actually director, you know, so fooled you. (laughs) But I think you get the point. Um, and, And by the way, you know, you guys are all probably thinking, you know, he... He really needed to stay in counseling. Why did he, why did he ever leave? <laughs> but I want to just assure you if, you, if you're now all concerned about me, um, the Lord's work in my life has been so real, and it's been so deep. Um, and it's, you know, like I said, it's not like, oh, all of a sudden, you know, everything is perfect and life is pain-free. But I, just, I want you to know that I neither believe nor feel those narratives as deeply as I once did. So why do I bring all this up? Um, The reason that I bring up my own story is not to make this about me, uh, but it's just because narratives are powerful. Um, All of us have some kind of inner monologue, um, voices in your head, the things that you believe at the deepest levels of your heart about yourself. And I wonder what those things are for you. And in fact, um, I actually want to do something a little bit unorthodox. Um, Right here, right now, um, I want you to take out a pen and a piece of paper, and I want us just to take a minute or two of silence, and I want us to pause and for you to ask yourself, what are those narratives for you? What are those narratives for you? What are the voices in your head? What are the things that you deep down believe are true about yourself? Or maybe they're things that you know are not true deep down about yourself, but still they're things, lies that you're tempted to believe. So these are not to, you know, you don't need to share these with anyone else. These are just for you. Um, but just take a minute or two and write some of those things down. Okay, now I know that may not have been adequate time. Um, I'll tell you, it's taken me years to really sometimes name and process what those narratives are for me. And thank you just for being willing to go there with me. Um, you know, It takes bravery to acknowledge what those things are for you. Um, Another name for what we're talking about is is the word agreements. Um, Agreements that we've made with ourselves about who we are or what's true about us, even if those things are not true. Um, So, agreements can be things like, um, you know, I'm unlovable, uh, I'm messed up, I'm worthless, or I'll never allow anyone to get close to the real me, or it's impossible for me to ever have a healthy romantic relationship. And the question I want to ask tonight as we look at this passage is, what is it that can break those agreements? What can silence the accusing, lie-infested narratives that we or others or the enemy has sown into our minds and that leave our lives shackled to things like fear, sin, and shame? Here's the answer that the Bible offers us. The answer, the thing that breaks the agreements, is the fatherhood of God, the fatherhood of of God. Um, listen to this quote. This is from theologian J.I. Packer. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Father is the Christian name for God. In other words, the fatherhood of God is one of the most important themes of the entire Bible. So as you may know, um, the series that we've been in, it's this Bible overview series, and, and we've kind of come now to the part of the Bible, the, the, the New Testament letters. Um, you know, the Gospels, we've said, tell you about who Jesus is, what Jesus did. The letters tell you what Jesus means, um, what does it mean that Jesus died on the cross? What does it mean that Jesus rose again? What does it mean that Jesus saves us? And so, you know, what we said last week is that um, for the next few weeks, we're, we're looking at this part of the Bible, and we're doing that um, by looking at just kind of one aspect of that question, um, and that's by zooming in on the area of identity. Um, how does Jesus, how does the story of the whole Bible give you a whole new identity, a whole new way of seeing yourself? I mean, last Thursday, we answered that question uh, by looking at how the Bible, particularly in Paul's letter to the Romans, um, it tells us that God has shared with us his righteousness, um, or what theologians call justification by faith. a Big theological term. You know, justify is a word that just means to declare righteous. And so justification by faith gets at the fact that one of the most amazing things about the gospel is that because of the life Jesus lived and the death Jesus died, we can know forgiveness, Um, I remember when I was in college, I had a professor who taught our New Testament class, and I think it was the first, second day of class. He said, You know, in our day, we think that man's greatest need is the need to be happy. But the people who wrote the Bible had a different perspective. Their perspective was that man's greatest need is the need to be forgiven. And justification says we in Jesus are forgiven. But justification is, is, is more than that, actually. It's even more incredible because, you know, last week used the analogy of the blackboard. If all of your sin were written up on a blackboard for the whole world to see, you know, forgiveness just says that that record gets erased. But the gospel actually goes one further than that. It says that it's not just that your record gets erased, it's that Jesus' record gets written on that blackboard instead. So now your blackboard says things like this. It's things like holy, redeemed, cleansed, forgiven. And that is not tied to how well of a day you're having. You know, so the example um, from last week, from the, the, the famous book, A Tale of Two Cities, and there's these two guys, the one guy is sentenced to die, the other guy trades places with that guy, and then he dies in his place. So it's not just that the one guy, the guy who's sentenced to die, that he's let off the, the hook for the crimes he's been sentenced for. Um, it's that now he gets to go free. They, they trade statuses. The, the, the free guy gets the status of the guy who's sentenced to die, and the guy who's sentenced to die gets the status of the person who's free. It's the great exchange. So this is why, you know, if you're a Christian, if you grasp this whole idea of, like, justification by faith, God sharing his righteousness with us, it totally changes your identity. You know, on all other religions, all other worldviews, Acceptance is something you achieve. You have to earn your acceptance by God. You have to earn the feeling that you're enough. Um, and so that's what you, sometimes we try to do through, through all kinds of self-salvation strategies. Um, your self-salvation strategy could be that you follow all the rules of your religion. Um, it could be that you try to succeed in your career. It could be that you are, are, are like in a relationship and so now you feel like you're okay because you're in that relationship. Um, or you try to hold control over all the areas of your life And you say, you know, so kind of the the idea is if you achieve all those things, then you can feel accepted by God, by others, and even by yourself. But the gospel says that acceptance uh, acceptance by God isn't something that you achieve, it's something you receive. God can't love you any more than he already does. And the proof is the cross. Because like while we literally hated God, while we were living selfishly for ourselves, ignoring God, using God, outright rejecting God, God and the person of Jesus, the person of his son, comes into this world, he takes our sin, he dies a sacrificial death in our place. And that means that we don't have to earn God's love, he's already given it to us. And so that changes your identity. Instead of obeying God begrudgingly because you're just trying to like pry blessing out of his cold, you know, unwilling fingers, Instead, you can obey God joyfully because it's just out of gratitude for how much he's done for you. Or instead of our sense of self, feeling always unstable, the gospel allows you to feel secure because instead of your identity going up and down based on your performance, your identity is now based on Jesus' performance. Failure and hardship don't have to crush you because you know your worth is, is, is no longer based on that. So, you know, you can see this whole idea, God, like, exchanging our status for his justification by faith. It's radical. gives you a radical new identity. Um, And in fact, if you didn't get to look at the gospel versus religion chart on the handout last week, let me just encourage you to go back and look at it. If you go on the Thrive website, navigate to the message from last week, you can download a copy of that. And it's just, it's a helpful tool that helps see, helps you see how a gospel identity is just so different um, than the identity that the world gives you. Okay, so all that's review. That's last week. Here's the shocker. The shocker is that what we're actually talking about tonight is actually way better than all the stuff we talked about last week. You might not even thought that's possible, but it is. (laughs) Like forgiveness and freedom, all that stuff from last week is amazing. But tonight, what we're looking at, the fatherhood of God or what theologians call adoption is even better. That's because justification only can give you a new status. But adoption, which is built on top of that, gives you a new relationship. And let me explain what I mean. Uh, So go back with me for a minute. Just think back to what um, J.I. Packer, that theologian, said in the quote that I read you. Um, So he says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. What is a father? A father is far more than just the person who conceived you or even who raised you. A father, among many other things, is someone who names you. A father is someone who names you. Think about Abraham. You know, originally Abraham's name was Abram, but God intervenes and gives him a new name of Abraham. Or think of Noah. Um, You know, actually Noah's name is a word that points to Noah's destiny as as a kind of savior, the one who would preserve life on earth in his day. And that prophetic name was given to him by his father, Lamech. So his father names him, and in that naming, in in a way, casts vision for, for Noah's destiny, in a sense. Or think about Jacob. This is a really interesting one. When Jacob's son, Benjamin, is born, you might remember that Rachel, his mother, dies in childbirth, and so she names him in her last breaths, uh, a name that means son of my sorrow. But then, Benjamin's father intervenes and says, no, no, I'm going to call him Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, a sign of strength. And so Benjamin's identity, in part, is it, it, you, you see it come from the way that his father intervenes and names him, or John the Baptist. There's another intervention. He's going to be named after his father Zechariah, but then his father speaks up and says, No, his name is John. And even Jesus, on the eve of his great contest with the devil in the wilderness, needed to hear his father speak his true identity over him. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. To be given a name is the idea of being told who you really are. You know, there's that scene in The Lion King where um, Simba, who feels just so lost after the murder of his own father, all but gives up on his dream of being the king he was born to be. And so he disappears into the jungle. He lives like an outlaw, and, and he basically becomes a perpetual adolescent. He refuses to grow up into an adult. And really, he's living under shame. He's become so convinced he can't ever be the kind of leader that his father was. And so instead of facing his fear, he hides. What changes everything for him is is one night when he looks up at the sky and he sees a vision of his father, remember this? Remember what his father says? I don't know that I can imitate kind of the deep Mufasa voice very well. But remember, remember what he says, he says, Remember who you are. <laughs> Is that okay? It's pretty good. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, my inner, inner, inner Mufasa. He says, remember who you are. He names him. He says, basically, remember that you're the king. <laughs> remember that you're my son. Remember that you are beloved. I wonder how many of us need to hear that. I wonder how many of us need to hear the voice of the Father that says, you are my beloved. When you're born into this world, your parents are meant to feel like they're your pillars. They're supposed to be the ones who protect you, who nurture you, who make you feel safe. And in fact, um, there's, there's research that we have now from an area of psychology called attachment theory. And it shows that when children grow up either in an environment that's unstable, you know, say if the the parents were absent or abusive or they died, um, or even when the parents were present but they weren't sensitive to the child's needs, so, for example, due to to being abusive or addicted or, or emotionally unavailable, this totally affects the way that a child develops socially and emotionally. I mean, it affects who we become. Now, I'm not trying to make you depressed or anything. Maybe you're like, oh man, now I need to go to counseling. Oh my gosh, what have my parents done to me? Oh, I'm all, you know. Uh, My neighbors are great. They have four wonderful kids. And whenever something happens in their family, their parents just tell their kids, ah, you know, just put it in your file. You'll need it for counseling someday. (laughs) But the point is, uh, the, the influence of a parent isn't just, it isn't just, you know, kind of physical protection. It goes way beyond the formation of our brain chemistry or our social behaviors. Parents aren't just those who are meant to protect you physically, they're also meant to protect your heart. Parents, and I think fathers in particular, are those who are meant to affirm us and to help us internalize at the deepest layers of our heart that we are loved. And fathers in particular also initiate us. You know, um, recently I was with a friend of mine who is a relatively recent uh, newlywed. We got into this conversation about um, when he and his wife want to have kids. It was kind of funny. His his wife was kind of like a little more eager than he was to have kids. Uh, But anyway, this, this friend of mine, he's just good at, so many things. I mean, he, like, he's a genius at working on cars, at remodeling a house, you know basically anything he does with his hands, um, and he's an entrepreneur on the side who like, made,, like, I don't even want to tell you how much money in a year, just like on his side hustle. <laughs> so <clears throat> my comment to him was, "Man, Marty, I would love to be your kid. Like I'd be so excited to have you as a dad because you'd teach me how to do stuff. And fathers are often those who teach us how to do stuff. You know they help initiate us into manhood or into womanhood? You know, how many of you have memories of your dad teaching you how to fish or how to hike, how to go camping, how to fix a flat tire, you know, how to file your taxes? Or you know men, maybe it was your dad who first taught you how to ask a girl out, or how to handle the pitfalls of internet pornography, or women in the room, How many of you learned that you were beautiful because your father told you so? Or how many of you felt safe from an awful, cringy guy who was trying to date you because you knew that he'd have to go through your dad in order to get to you? Fathers initiate us. Now look, I know what I'm doing here. Like, I I know that probably for many, if not most of the people in this room the answer to most of those questions that I've just asked may very well be no. And you might be thinking like, no, I, I don't have any of those memories. My father wasn't around. My father was absent. My father was emotionally unavailable. You know, he never, ever, ever told me, I love you. The reality is that every single one of us has been wounded. You know, no one makes it through this life without your heart being shot at. And no matter how well your parents tried to protect your heart, some kind of bullet or another always finds a way to lodge itself deep inside your soul. You know, it could be like a brazen comment that someone made about you, and and they didn't even know that it hit way, way deeper than they ever could have imagined. You've you've never forgotten it. I'm thinking of a comment right now that was like that for me. Uh, or kids at school who bullied you and made fun of you. Maybe it, was, <laughs> maybe it was discovering pornography as a teenager and being caught in a cycle of shame and secrecy that you're still trying to get out of. Or, you know, maybe it's that your parents got divorced and somehow left you feeling like it was your fault. All of these are wounds. All of these are arrows. All of these are hits. And this is where the narratives come from. You know, Lies about whether we're lovable, noble, actually, if we're actually worth something to anybody. And what we need, what we desperately need and long for is the love of a true father. We don't just need a legal status that says, I'm forgiven. We need to be held We need to feel cherished. We need to be swept up into the arms of a love so deep that it finally reaches down to the depths of our heart to silence our narratives and break all the agreements. And the good news of the gospel is that this is exactly the kind of love that God gives to us. Look with me now at the text. And look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In this passage, the key word that appears here is the word adoption. What does it mean to be adopted? Adopted. What does that mean? You know, when I was in college, I had a friend who was the oldest of 14 siblings. I think it's now even more. Um, And that's because, with the exception of her three biological siblings, all the rest had been internationally adopted. And so, what that means is that they were orphaned, they were alone, but somehow this, this family in America heard about their plight. And at great cost to themselves, They literally got on a plane, crossed an ocean, traveled to a distant country, and found that child to make them a part of their family, to be a part of a home, a place of love, a place of security, a place of intimacy. And so when Paul says that we have received the spirit of adoption as sons, what he's saying is that in Jesus, God has done the exact same thing for us. God looked down and saw that we had sinned against him and that because of our sin, we were lost. We were alone. We were helpless. And instead of leaving us to the consequences of our sin, God himself paid an infinite cost to come down from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus in order to adopt us, in order to rescue us. And what was the cost? The cost that Jesus suffered was the face of the Father. On the cross, Jesus was cut off. Jesus lost the love of his Father so that we would never have to. That's why these verses say that all those who believe in Jesus, who are filled with the Spirit of God, are children of God. In other words, it's saying, they know God as Father. And that is the glory of the Gospel. Let me just ask you, What would change if your identity were based on that? First of all, it would mean that at last you can know your true name. It means that at last you can know your true name. Um, In the book of Revelation, it records God saying, uh, this is Revelation 2.17, I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Now, I'm not exactly sure what that means. (laughs) If you know, then come talk to me afterward. But one thing I know that it means is that God is the one who really names us. You know, when you're adopted, if if you're literally adopted into a new family, you take on that family's name. You get a new name. You know, my friends, brothers, and sisters share the same last name because they've all been adopted into the same family by the same parents. And when God adopts us into his family, don't you see that we get Christ's name? God knows us by our relationship to Jesus, not by our sin. You know, it's been said, the devil knows you by your name, but calls you by your sin. God knows you by your sin, but calls you by your name. God knows us by our relationship to Jesus, not by our sin. The very relationship that the son had with the father is the same kind of relationship that we can have with God then I hope it does. I hope it does. Um, You know, in the Old Testament, there's a great, famous little verse. It's the only verse that anyone ever quotes out of the book of Zephaniah, because all the rest of it is just death and destruction. But there's one verse, more than one verse. But there's one verse that everyone quotes, and it's Zephaniah 3.17. And it says, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Now, when you hear that verse, or when you read that verse, have you ever stopped to wonder, just what was he singing over them? You know, what's he singing over me? And if what Paul is saying here about adoption is really true, then it's the same thing that he's saying over Jesus at his baptism. This is my son, or my daughter, whom I love with him or her I am well pleased. And that's not because of anything that we've done. It's not that God overlooks our sin. But if you really have been adopted by God, then you share the status, the relationship, the intimacy with the Father that the Son himself experiences. And that's amazing. Now, a second thing that this means for your identity, if, if what Paul is saying here is true, it's not just that you can know your true name, but it's that we can know an intimate closeness. An intimate closeness. Um, you know, salvation is not just a status, it's a relationship. And if God has adopted us, that means that we can have intimate access to Him, to the King of the universe. Um, you know, look back at verse 15. It says, You do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Um, Abba is a word that can be translated daddy. It's a term of intimacy. You know, if a child is out playing and they fall down and they scrape their knee, what are they gonna do? You know, probably what's gonna happen is they're gonna run to mom or to dad and they're gonna throw themselves into their arms and just weep. (laughs) Maybe you have seen this, maybe you have done this, maybe you have siblings who do this. And the right response that the mom and dad should have is to dress the wound, soothe their fears, and hold them close. The Bible says that is the kind of relationship God wants to have with us. Um, Travis, can you put the picture up on the screen? So I don't know if you can see this very well. This is a famous picture. And the man at the desk, anyone know who the man at the desk is? It's John F. Kennedy. And he's sitting at his desk in the Oval Office. But you can see there's a second person in this photo. Down below, uh, kind of at his feet, um, peering through a little, a little secret compartment there in his desk, is his son. This is John F. Kennedy's son. Now, if you're the President of the United States, the most important, powerful person on the face of the earth, you probably have all kinds of people who want to see you. You know, if I went to try to go see the President, um, I wouldn't be able to. But John F. Kennedy's son, if ever he needed anything from his father, if ever he needed to talk to his dad, he could knock on the door of the Oval Office and no matter how many important things his father was doing, he could come and take his place right at his father's feet. He had access. He had closeness. He had intimacy with his father. And this picture is a tiny fraction of a sliver of the glory, of the kind of access and intimacy that we can have, not with the President of the United States, but something far greater, the God of the universe. So we can have intimate closeness. A third thing that it means is that we can have a confident assurance of our relationship with God. You know, imagine one day you open the newspaper, and my face is on the front page. And it's on the front page because I've committed a terrible, unspeakable crime. And you decide, well, I can never be friends with Michael ever again. Now, what about when my parents find out? When my parents find out what I've done, how do you think they're going to react? You know, most likely, they're going to be deeply sad, probably deeply heartbroken, maybe even angry at the wreck that I've made of my life and of others' lives. But you know one thing that will never change? No matter how much I sin or how much I fail, I will never, in fact, I can never ever, ever, ever cease to be the son of Phil and Susan Bautersa. I can never, ever cease to be their son. I mean, think about it. Like, I was born their son. I can't, like, reverse that. I can't, like, not be their son. It's impossible. I will always be a son. And if you are a Christian, the same thing is true for you. No matter how much you have sinned in the past, or will sin in the present, or will sin in the future, you can't ever cease to be a son or daughter of your father in heaven. You will always have a place in his heart. And so that's why in this passage, by the way, the spirit of sonship is contrasted with the spirit of slavery to fear. You know, a slave can be fired by his master at any time. If the slave screws up, he's out of the job. But a son will always be a son, whether he screws up or not. And then one last thing that adoption means for our identity, and I, I love this. If this is true, then we can have a breathtakingly bold fearlessness. Fearlessness. Um, okay, one of my heroes, the uh, missionary martyr Jim Elliott said, in famous quote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now, don't you see that this is actually true? If if God has really adopted us as his children, then don't you see that you we can't ever lose his love? That, that means that you don't have to be afraid, therefore, of losing his love. You don't have to be afraid of screwing up. Now, I'm not saying don't have a holy fear of sin. That's good. But, you know, how many of you are like me and get into analysis paralysis because you're just so afraid that you're going to make the wrong decision, you know, and you, just, you can't Make the decision because you're just afraid of if, I, you know, if I step here, like what if I make the wrong decision and then God will be upset with me? I'll, I'll, I'll miss out on his plan A for my life and then I'll be stuck on plan B and plan B still ends up in heaven but it wasn't God's best for me and oh my goodness, you know, what am I going to do? You get stuck. But if you can't lose God's love, then all that means is just you know, make the best decision and then just take a chill pill, relax. <laughs> because no matter the outcome, God can't love you any more than he already does. And that means you don't have to be afraid. Because no matter what, you can't lose. Not even suffering, not even death, not even anything can take away the love of Christ. And so you're free. You're free to take risks. You're free to be bold. You're free to go do crazy things for Jesus. Because there's nothing you have to fear. And then... Um, just as we come to a conclusion here I'm going to wrap this up by by just reading one final verse for you Um, we've looked at Romans 8 we've looked at just sort of four things that this means if it's true for who we are, our sense of identity that you can know your true name that you can have an intimate closeness with God you can have confident assurance of your salvation and you can have a bold fearlessness and just finally I'm going to just go back to where we began Um, in Psalm 143 verse 12 it says in your unfailing love Silence my enemies. And this, this that we're talking about tonight, this relationship is what we need to silence the narratives, to break the agreements, and to get it down into the deepest layers of our heart that God really, really, truly loves us. He is our Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you that for all those who have put their trust in you that we can know you as Father. Um, the Bible doesn't say that, that all creatures are, are children of God, but it does say that those who have come to know Jesus in a saving way have been adopted into his family as children of God. And Lord, just help us get in touch with the identity that you've given us as beloved. In Jesus' name, amen.